Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, we have Ryan Fairchild. And it's a very common thread now to see a lot of people from the mainstream legal field wanting to get into esports. Uh, there's always some problems to be solved there. But Ryan has been around, I guess you could say, since day dot. He's been on the ground working with some of the smallest and some of the largest organizations in the mix. And you know, you could say a real expert on the market. So I had to get him on for a LinkedIn Live. And now you're listening to the podcast as a result. Enjoy. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg how are you ryan doing all right how about yourself chris good man good it's it's just been a long weekend here in australia so we we had um we had australia day over the weekend so got a bit of time to relax and we have this thing in australia called Triple J, which is kind of the youth, it's a youth government funded radio station. And they always have, it's the day before Australia Day now, they have the hottest 100 um, where they, everybody votes and they have the top 100 songs. And the one that I picked to win did win, which was bad guy. Seems, seems like a pretty obvious pick to me. But mate, where, where are you calling in from today? Whereabouts in the world are you? So I'm in North Carolina. I'm out on the coast of Wilmington, North Carolina. So right on the Atlantic, about 15 minutes from the beach. Not too bad. Yeah, no, it is. And, uh, you know, we, it stays pretty nice here. I can count the number of Christmas Eves I've had in shorts, you know, like about 50 50 between shorts, no shorts. So, damn. Weather out here. Although, you probably get that in Australia too. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely shorts. I mean, my my family's from from up north in Queensland and, um, you know, Christmas Day. There's, there's something crazy about Christmas Day that usually it seems to be the hottest of any day around. So I've, I've had many, you know, almost almost 100 degree Fahrenheit Christmas days. So yeah. definitely shorts or more so inside with the air conditioning on. <laughs> yeah, especially with the Southern Hemisphere. That's right, because you're, you're having your summer down there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mate, well, let's we've, we've got a lot to talk about. We went over a bunch of topics that we had to stop ourselves from talking about pre-broadcast. So give us a bit of introduction into yourself and then we'll dive straight into it. Yeah, so I think there's sort of two components that go to my introduction. One is how I came up as a gamer, and then the other one's how I became a lawyer and then got into esports with that. But, you know, the mm. first thing I ever saved up my allowance for was the Sega Genesis system. The first job I ever had was at a mini golf arcade called Sunnyvale Golfland, where actually a lot of the people who started Evo used to play. So back in the Bay Area of California, they had Battle of the Bay, and then that evolved into Evo. And so I used to play against people like Ricky Ortiz 20 years ago, uh, playing Tech and Tag tournament games like that. And then when I was going to law school, kept playing games, but started watching a lot of StarCraft videos and StarCraft tournaments and Dota 2 tournaments and started playing Dota 2 and started sleeping less and playing more video games in order to both study to become a lawyer and keep up the the addiction. But when I got out of law school, you know, I was looking at doing litigation with a firm. I went and clerked for a judge. And when I landed at the law firm where I am at now and interviewed, everybody asked if you could do anything in law, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd probably do esports. You know, that was what I was most interested in in terms of 
where the industry was going and the questions that were coming up, business side questions mostly. I had no idea what the law looked like in esports at the time. Mm. But just talking about the business of it, everybody thought that's really interesting. I have no idea what you're talking about, but that's all, you know, the demographics were interesting. The prize pools were interesting. They were like, if you can get it, go chase it. And so about, shoot, two years ago now, uh, about two and a half years ago now, I, I had some time where I started, I basically had one contact in the space, Will Parton, who was a writer for GGA, for Evil Geniuses, and who happened to be doing a PhD at UNC while I was there doing law school. We became friends. I said, Will, can you connect me to anybody? And I was particularly interested in working on the player side and in players unions and things like that, uh, which I thought was something that would have more potential to sort of move the space in the right direction, um, countering publishers a little bit. And mm. Will connected me to a, one player who connected me to somebody else who connected me to somebody else. And some of those early connections were really good um, contacts and really good sources for generating business. And, you know, I've, I, by volume, I do a lot of player work now um, and some team side work, but again, mostly player side work and a little bit of some of the ancillary services that come into the space. So, um, about two years ago, it was 0% of what I do. And now it's between 20 and 30%, sometimes more depending on the week. That's mm. a topic that we didn't write down, but I'd love to kick off with that you said is around unions. There's, yeah. There always seems to be such a call for player unions, but besides Counter-Strike, there seems to be basically zero movement from anywhere. And I think, I'm fairly sure this is something that PPD and, and I talked about a little bit as well, you know, Dota Play, and I'll probably talk, I'm talking to Loader in a couple of weeks as well you know, player turned business businessman as well. And I'll be asking him, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that whole market. Is it because the players just don't have time? They don't want to take charge. They don't want the extra work. Like, like why are there not more player unions around? I think there are multiple challenges. Um, one is, and this is actually something I'm still interested to see how the CSPPA addresses it. Labor laws vary from country to country and esports mm. is very international. So, you know, there, there's, there are ways to make it work internationally, but you start to sort of diffuse the control a little bit. So, for example, <laughs> if you have a workers' union here in the United States and a workers' union in Australia, those are governed by different sets of labor laws. And so yeah. trying to unify them to put them under one umbrella becomes a challenge. And then with esports, how many countries are you going to end up with that under the umbrella, all the different types of laws, things like that. So that's mm -hmm. one challenge, and that's more of sort of a legal and governance challenge. Um, on the player side, I think there are several challenges. I think you hit on one, which is time and commitment, and they want to know what the value is coming out of that, right? They mm -hmm. want to know, you know, is this really going to do something for me? Is this going to save me time? Because most players are hyper-focused on playing the game they love. I mean, you know, even when even when they're working with me um, or they're working with their accountant or something, it's still like, all right, how can I shortcut this? Please do work for me so I don't have to worry about it. And so with the players union, you need some upfront investment, even with the players association, investment of time and attention mm -hmm. in order to do that. The other investment you need is actual money investment. So you have this chicken and the egg problem of, you know, traditional players association or players union, you have rep or multiple reps who are basically out there getting paid, doing the work of the union. They're the public face. Uh, mm -hmm. You've got 
Michelle, and I'm, her name's escaping me right now, who was the NBA Players Association rep. She was the, the lead person there. Um, and so in order to get that person paid, you either need dues or some other money coming in in order to fund that position. And players might be hesitant to fund that if they're not sure what value is going to come out of it for them. So those are some of the challenges I see. The other big challenge, and I think this might be one of the reasons that the CSPPA is doing better, is you don't really have an old guard that's getting old enough who is moving on to the business side of things who can then come back and help everybody sort of organize that. Counter-Strike, you had Scoots, who's been in the industry forever and who sort of shepherded this thing along because he understood and he saw it. I think Mm -hmm. as players get older, you will see more of that. My concern is also, what's the lifespan of an esport? We haven't really seen necessarily a full cycle, at least not at the stage we're at. Counter-Strike, Dota 2, League of Legends, um, really Smash and some of those other games have been a lot around for a longer time and have sustained it at this high level. You've got some others, you know, don't kill me, Slasher, but Quake, you know, had a scene, not as big now. Maybe it'll come back with a new game or something. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there are it's other like- games like that. So the life cycle, I think, affects it as well, is can you get sort of that maturation of players to that professional level and that maturity where then they come back and help to grow the scene itself. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you talk about the full life cycle of, of an eSport, right? Because, like you said, we haven't really seen one yet, and it's and it's so hard to say, like, what is the life cycle? If you think, like, you know, the players, as far as they're aware, Heroes, um, Heroes of the Storm was going perfectly fine until one day they woke up and they're all out of a job and the league didn't simply didn't exist anymore, right? When it's so pivotal on a private or publicly listed company, like a for-profit company that's running their whole scene, it's funding everything. And we... I mean, we saw this in Australia. If, you, if you're looking at probably what the most popular esport is in Australia, there'd, there'd be two. There'd be CSGO and League of Legends. And a lot of the reason that Counter-Strike is so popular is because there was always so much content to consume that wasn't provided by the developer. There was always at least two online leagues. Every quarter, there was a bring-your-own-computer LAN party in every major state that had a tournament. And then there was a once-a-year or twice-a-year nationals, which was, you know, eight teams would all fly together after an online qualifiers and play together. So it didn't need that publisher support. However, you had, say, Call of Duty here in Australia when they had the twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollar leagues that were all su- that were all supported by Blizzard Activision, the scene was seen to be thriving at that time. All the top organizations had teams, etc. But as soon as that disappeared, now our biggest tournament in the past three years was a ten thousand dollar league that the two best teams in Australia didn't attend. So, you know, the scene is is pretty much dead for for lack of a better term. And if you want to make it anywhere, like a few of our players are, you have to go overseas to try to play in the COD World League, which, you know, a few people have been signed up to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how long is an eSport going to last? And what's the dynamic of how the publisher is going to control that going forward? Those are huge questions. I think that's part of the fun of eSports is you're always dealing with new things and there's always going to be new games coming out. You know, Mm. baseball, uh, I think the NHL is just over 100 years old. NFL is a little bit younger than that. NBA younger still. But, you know, those... Those are going to have lifespans as well, but with games, because of the natural cycle to push out a new game, that's going to be accelerated. At least I think mm-hmm. it will be accelerated. The other problem as well is publishers still are making most of their money off of publishing games, not off esports. And so their incentive is still on the publishing side, 
instead of on the how do we monetize this thing long term. And the other challenge with that is they still control that monetization. Whereas the NFL or, you know, other professional sports leagues, the EPL, you know, go overseas with with anything you want. Mm-hmm. They're a collection of teams and <clears throat> the entity that is formed is to the benefit of the whole space. With esports, it's still the benefit to a single organization that isn't looking out for everybody. They don't have those stakeholders like in other professional leagues. They're watching out for themselves. Mm. So we talked about one side of, of what you're discussing, which is unions. The other side is obviously obviously governing bodies. So I think in the past in the past month, there's been another one that's cropped up, and I don't have the link on me right now, but that would be you know the thirtieth governing body that claims to govern esports across the world. Um, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about you know the performance of any that exists so far and ones that happen in the future. You know, in and and to add some some uh, some more meat to that, I guess you know here in Australia, I was part of founding an esports. Um, association, you know, which didn't claim to be a governing body, EGAA, but ran into so many of the same problems that you were saying about the player unions. You know, there were seven of us on the board, but we're all either have been moving overseas to work in esports or like myself, founding and running our own companies. Lack of funding, lack of time just ends up fizzling out in the end. So I'd be really interested to hear from you about, you know, we've talked about player unions. What about governing bodies? Um, Governing bodies... I don't really see the point right now unless you have buy-in from the stakeholders and publishers. Like, where's the buy-in from the publishers? Mm. I mean, you you have a little bit. I think Valve worked with the Esports Integrity Coalition on a couple of matters, but mm-hmm. again, like, who cares about governing bodies if the publisher isn't there? So these countries can set these things up, but unless they start regulating. Unless you get governments regulating and then you have some sort of need for that, I, I don't see what the point is. Um, people can set themselves up all the time, say some nice things, put out a video with VR Taekwondo or whatever they had in the last one. And uh, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. So, And, and that's actually another thing um, that I think people should be thinking about is right now there is virtually no government regulation in this space uh, where you have government – and that's good and bad um, – probably for the most part good but where you do have government regulation is sort of on the margins with employment law um although we haven't been heavily scrutinized on that so you know mm-hmm. we're starting to clean up player classification between independent contractors and employees at least in the US you see it in gambling and loot box laws but you haven't had it directly on the space um i guess the one other big elephant in the room in terms of regulation is intellectual property law and that's why this whole you know, that's why publishers control this whole space is because of copyright law. But mm-hmm. until you get government regulation or really, uh, you know, buy-in from these publishers, I, I don't see the point of these governing bodies. I also don't see the point of like the Olympics getting involved or NCAA or any of that. Like, what are they going to do? I just, I don't see it at all. Mm. Yeah. And I, and, you know, on the Olympics thing, um, it's, it's always an interesting discussion for me because a lot of people outside of esports say we need the Olympics, but often, you know, trying to explain to them that there's an extra level of complexity in esports where everything's commercial in the end. There's an IP, there's a rights holder that sits at the end of everything. So it might be in League of Legends' best interest to lobby the IOC to get it into the Olympics because that means more downloads for their game, more monthly active users, and therefore more microtransactions. But no one necessarily owns the right to go, and explain it very simply, no one owns the right for you to lace up shoes and go for a run. So it's, you know, it's very different. And, you know, what games do you pick? And then there's the whole, you know, Olympics trying to tell us that 
you know, these are the kind of games we want to pick and these are the games you should play. And obviously the esports audience has a very strong bullshit filter or bullshit meter and um, they don't enjoy being told what to do. So, you know, it doesn't matter about the current political climate or what's happening in the world with, with Counter-Strike and the kind of content that's in there. That's one of the, easily one of the most popular esports in the world. So if you're not running that, you know, and, and, you know, and you don't want to sponsor that, well, you're kind of missing out. Yeah, and the other issue there is I'd be interested to see what viewership demographics look like for the Olympics. I bet a lot of these publishers have looked at that and said, what are we going to gain from this? Yeah. Like, you know, are you going to pay us? Are we paying you to be in the Olympics? What's the licensing flow? And if we're not getting paid and there aren't new people who are going to download our game because we probably have a stronger brand than the Olympics among our demographic, you know, what are you going to do? Maybe we make parents think this is more of an okay thing. You know, just I, I, I haven't thought through all of it, but I just don't see where I sit here now, what the play is for publishers to join the Olympics. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really true. And I guess, you know, that's the thing that we've been discussing with sports as, you know, sports as, as a singular with how can you use games and marketing within games and influences and such to add value and bring new audiences in. Because if you're looking at the PGA, I think the average age is 51 years old of a PGA fan. NFL was somewhere in the 40s. You know, NBA was the youngest, but it was still somewhere in the 30s. Whereas, you know, a lot of esports, as we all know, the classic marketing is, you know, 18 to 24 is a large yep. demographic for most of these people. So, you know, and, and while you were talking, I did a quick Google here, for example, it's a it's an article on, on New Republic called How Olympics Lost the Millennials. So it's saying here, and this is for US, US viewers in the 2008 Olympics was 47, 48 in 2012, 2014 Winter Games was 55 is the average average age of a viewer there. So, yeah, I think you're I think you're 100% right. And what you're saying to me rings very true for a lot of the time when a mainstream celebrity or a sports athlete tries to come across into esports and they wonder why their 500,000 to 1.5 million Instagram followers aren't suddenly converting into 3,000 Twitch concurrent viewers. Mm. It's because the audience isn't exactly the same people and they're following yeah. you for your Formula One, they're following you for your golf, they're following you for whatever else, they're not following you for Fortnite and League of Legends. Um, another, this is a slightly different dynamic, but I actually think that esports can gain from the Olympics in terms of storytelling. So one thing I've heard, or, or watching Overwatch, for example, one thing I've heard is that they haven't really done a good job of talking and introducing people to the game because it's a hard game to follow, frankly. But mm -hmm. one thing they could do is if they had these sort of player-centered stories Think about the Olympics, right? You come in, you don't know anything about the sport, you don't know anything about who's competing, and they introduce you to, here's this person, here's five minutes about their background, the hardships they've had to overcome, their road to the Olympics, and what they're fighting for now, what they're playing for now. You could take that form mm -hmm. of story storytelling, use it to introduce an audience who isn't familiar with a particular esport, and give them a storyline to hook into, and that's their entry point into it. And where then they'll start to invest, okay, now I want to learn more about the rules about this. You know, mm. now people, you know, there's some people who like curling now or other sports as a result of watching the Olympics, but what got them into it initially are those human stories. And that's where I think esports has a lot to gain. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. And I think it's I think there's so many things that esports can learn from a very like industry, which is the influencer industry that you know they're not so far like you're saying about the storytelling being accountable to your fans being open and honest and in touch with them 24 7 and being more open honest and realistic 
um, or, or real true to yourself with your fans. And, you know, you don't necessarily see that all the time. And, you know, I, I do understand the arguments people say that the Olympics will help to bring some legitimacy and help to bring a lot of the people who are in control of these large marketing budgets and such to, you know, bringing more attention and eyeballs to it. The same way that um, some influencers who I know very well um, are over the moon when they're in a magazine, you know, but notwithstanding that they get more digital views per day than the magazine sells copies in a month. Yeah. But, you know, it just adds that legitimacy that, oh, I'm in Woman's Day, I'm in Men's Health, I'm in, you know, whatever kind of magazine, you know, that means you've made it or you're on TV. And it's the same with, um, you know, partner investors here at Playside Studios had Jerry Sackhurst, the CEO, on board for a, for a podcast a long time ago and, you know, discussing with him about that. He was in the local newspaper, you know, like third page or something like that. And people are like, wow, congrats. That must be so amazing. Said I didn't get a single lead because it's not my audience. You know, the, the 55 to 75 year old people that are reading the newspaper are not going to pay him to make a triple A mobile app for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, the landscape for players and such too. We've got, we've got quite a bit to get through here and a comment from Kieran John in the LinkedIn live has, has prompted me, I guess, towards that direction as well. So, We've seen a lot of the time that organizations, esports teams, they want to both operate as the manager and as the employee of a player or an influencer. Can you touch on just from a basic legal 101 perspective, what the issues are around that um, and, and what players and, and content creators should be doing when they start to get these offers through the door? Yeah. So there's, we sort of need to compartmentalize some of that. So I think esports players. Uh, while they can be influencers, have sort of a different role from pure influencers. So, for example, let's separate um, Doublelift as a player in League of Legends. Yes, he is an influencer, but he is he is also playing the game. From somebody like Voiboy or um, I'm a Cutie Pie who just plays the game. They go on mm-hmm. Twitch, and it, they're they're even doing other games now as well. But they don't play professionally anymore. They're just influencers, and that's what they focus on. Mm. And something that to me is important to distinguish between those is a question of what is the value that the agency, the management company, the team, whatever is bringing to you. If you're an influencer, I think that's a really important question to look at when a team comes to you. Are they going to bring me anything of value, or are they benefiting just from me? So maybe they're paying you some amount of salary and maybe they're giving you a cut of deals. But if you went out on your own, could you get more deals? Uh, maybe because you know the, the team is locked in on what sponsors it can do work with. Whereas if you're out on your own, you can work with anybody. You could go pull in, you know, do a monster ad one day, go do a Dr. Pepper ad the, the next day, do a Coca-Cola ad. You could be jumping around, whereas that team might be constrained. So on the influencer side... To me, you should be looking at a good agency, uh, you know, management company, an accountant, maybe a financial planner. If you're if you're making that level of money, um, you know, the agency, the management company might have lawyers that they put you in touch with. You might want a lawyer to help you figure out. So, really, you need a professional team instead of necessarily a TSM or an EG or a fanatic or whatever. On mm. the player side. Um, this is a big issue right now, especially if you're playing in a franchise league where there are only spots. Um, those teams are starting to act like management companies. And I haven't run down all the issues on that, but I do know that if you're operating in California, 
there is a requirement that you register as a talent agent if you are acting as a talent agent. If you are going out and sourcing work for somebody who you have an agreement with, you're supposed to go register and you're supposed to have, you know, run your contracts past the California Secretary of Labor, get those approved. So there's some real questions when I start seeing teams who operate in California, whose players are in California, starting to take percentages and say, hey, we're going to go out and find sponsorship deals for you and take a percentage and negotiate those for you. I have red flags go off. Um, now, I'm not licensed in California. And I'm not going to say for sure that there isn't some workaround that they have maybe by having them as an employee that they can do that. But that's something that you need to at least have a conversation about with your attorney or with somebody else. And also remembering that if the team is doing more of that work, it's going to be, and they have those protected sponsors, it's going to be difficult for you to get your own agent who then actually goes and does that typical agency work for you. This is a big difference between traditional sports and esports. Mm-hmm. In traditional sports, you have collective bargaining agreements between players, unions, and the league. And so you kind of work out all of these issues where the contracts are solidified, and then you go get your agent who helps get you sponsorship work. We don't have that in esports, but everybody's still treating it as if it were like sports and that, oh yeah, I just need an agent. I don't need to worry about what's in my contract necessarily. But that's that's a big falsehood right now that people aren't getting. Mm, yeah, I guess I, I wanted to unpack first, you're talking about influences inside esports teams. And I see this a lot um, in multiple regions, in, in Australia especially. Um, and I see this with agencies as well, where I feel like they're Pokemon collecting at the moment. There's a massive land grab right now in regards to influences where it's it's almost like the failing PR model. There's so many large PR companies at the moment who are losing all of their clients and they're churning through executives because I think the brands have realized that it's a flawed model in the fact that you want to sign up as many brands as you can, hire one manager, PR manager to look after them all. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a game of numbers in the end. And I guess to re-explain that, if, if you're running an old agency model, a lot of the time what you're trying to do is you're trying to sign up five brands for $200,000 each on retainer, and then you're trying to hire one manager at $55,000 to look after them all and to basically under-service them, but service them as much as possible so they don't complain. So you can have those people still stay on, and then you're making that extra money come through. And that's what I see a lot of the times with these talent agencies at the moment. They're trying to sign as many talent as they can to have a wide pool because A, they own them and other people don't. B, they're going to have those native emails coming through asking them for asking the inbounds to have the deals that they can cut, take the 15%, while really in that case they're only just acting as an email filter that you can pay a virtual assistant $2 an hour in the Philippines to run. Or what, what else they're trying to do is they're trying to, you know, what we say in gaming, which is stats pad, which is pad up their statistics for their overall sponsorship proposals out to brands. And I've seen this before with teams when they try to sign 20, 30, 40 small to mid-level influencers, provide them with the minimum amount of support as possible, but say, hey, look, collectively, we've got 500,000 Instagram followers. So, Raze, you should definitely sponsor us. But you do some looking into it and you realize that their League of Legends team collectively has a 1,000. You realize that their organization, Instagram, has 20,000 and it's all of their influencers that have the last, you know, 40, you know, 470, 480,000 followers. And you talk to these influencers and they say, look, I thought I was going to get so much out of it. I signed up. In the end, I got a mouse pad and I'm really upset. 
because now, like you were saying, I'm stuck into being sponsored by Razor. I'm stuck into being sponsored by Dr. Pepper. I can't go broker my own deals. I can't go to certain events. I can't work with competing teams, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and things like that. So I think there's so many problems. And I liked what you said about that too. When you're a creator, ask yourself, what exactly are you going to get out of this team or this yeah. organization? Because a lot of the time it can just be like getting featured in the newspaper. It could feel awesome you know, to have their tag on, but ultimately you could just be doing a lot of free work for them. You could be exposing all their banners, doing two tweets for them a month about their organization, and they're really just trying to give you a mouse pad or two. Yeah. No, I I think that is one of the questions that every content creator needs to have. And some content creators, you know, they need a platform where they can then grow and hit that level where maybe they don't need it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, everybody kind of starts out somewhere, but be very, very mindful um, one of the things I talk about with just regular business clients is what's your exit strategy? Like, what is your goal when you're creating this business and how do you eventually want to cash out? And I think esports players, content creators, they need to be having that same question is what are my goals? How, you know, they need to be thinking less myopically, more long term. What are my goals? How am I eventually going to cash out in order to get those goals? And cash out, cash out is a little bit different than when you own a business and you can sell it. But, you know, where do I want to jump off of this platform that the team's providing me and just be my own thing? Do I Mm -hmm. want to be a content creator? Do I want to play competitively? You know, where am I trying to go with this? That's going to inform a lot of your decisions along the way. Yeah. And that's definitely not saying that, you know, being a content creator organization doesn't work for everyone because Courage JD does not need to be in the 100 Thieves, however he is, and it seems to be going really well for him, the same way that Nick Merckx went from one to another, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got these kind of hybrid teams like FaZe who are packed with influencers, um, albeit with some, with some issues like you were discussing before. And with that, we don't know what their deals look like, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't know who's really benefiting from that relationship. Maybe 100 Thieves is just paying him, he can go out and do his own sponsorships and then they actually just benefit from his brand. They're basically another sponsor. Mm. So it could mm. be very different from some of these team arrangements where you have a competitive player who's locked into all of these other things. So again, it, it's really going to depend on what those deals look like, where the benefit's coming from. He could mm. still be benefiting from them paying him and providing some production services, You know, kind of in-housing that instead of him having to pay all these other people. Maybe they're managing, You know, who knows? And from and from the outside, the phase model to me looks decent for a creator the same way that, say, Click Management and the Click Crew does here in Australia. You know, Click, Click Crew and Click Management being one of the largest influencer organizations and kind of influencer teams in the world. They've got Laserbeam, who was the eighth most watched creator on YouTube um, last year, you know, in the, in the Rewind. So, obviously, got some serious power. And, you know, they were founded by Muzelk, who's a who's a YouTuber with 5 million subscribers and co. And he did this a lot of the time. He found smaller talent who were very interesting to him. He featured them on his YouTube. He played with them a lot. Lo and behold, they exploded because people want to consume more content from different angles watching music. And then he created an influencer agency that ended up managing a lot of these people. But the growth is inherent. The fact that this, and this is obviously what FaZe um, describes when they're talking about Tafui is that, you know, we help this guy go from kind of nothing to being a massive creator. Um, and then we didn't take any percentages from him throughout that time because he brought as much to the phase brand as we brought to him. The same way that, you know, you might want to sign with Click Crew 
over a faceless kind of organization because if you're signing with Click, there's a likelihood you get to work with Laserbeam. There's a likelihood you get to work with Muselk and they can help you blow up as long as that's what your goals are compared to if you sign with a B-tier organization that's going to pay you, you know, $300 a week as a contractor and, and give you a mouse pad and stuff every now and then, you know, you're not going to see much benefit from there. And I guess it, it goes, uh, and you get another way to explain it without trying to beat this topic too much is when I was working at Corsair or Thermaltake a lot of the time and very small YouTube channels would approach me or people would approach me saying, hey, I want you to be my first review on my YouTube channel, would have to explain to them that by me giving you a Corsair mouse on release day, I'm actually bringing more views to you than you are to Corsair in the brand because people are going to go to your channel just to see the new Corsair Sabre mouse, the Corsair Glaive, which will help launch mouse, rather than you've got that native 100,000 subscribers that are saying, oh, there's a Corsair mouse in there. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know about them. I'm going to watch it and I'm going to consume that content. Yeah. In some ways, it's a bit of speculation, right? You're trying to pick winners before they blow up Mm. or you're trying to create winners too. And Actually, that reminds me of a point. I've heard this said maybe one or two times before. Actually, I think it was said by Niles Heron at uh, Loaded. who said the best comparison actually for esports on the content creation, the influencer side, is not sports. It's the music business. Think mm. about record labels trying to sign artists who are going to hit it big and then benefiting from that and providing yeah. the production side of things we're going to get your name out there we're going to get your content out there and then hopefully people can follow you and buy your stuff yeah yeah i agree i agree 100 percent. and it's funny we're talking about the bets you know i did a i did a podcast which hasn't been released yet um with one of the co-founders of a swedish organization called godsend and you know i was asking them about what they're planning to do this year and and part of it is like what everyone did last year which is sign as many Fortnite players as you can because you're almost entering the lottery because there's a certain amount of randomness in that game you know you've got say a player like tofui once again who was known as you know a very good player coming like 60th or something in the world cup um, and relatively unknown players placing quite highly, you're almost you're almost really placing your bets. He was trying to sign 15, 20 content creators slash influencers slash esports pros as they are in Fortnite. The lines are quite blurry um, and just hoping as yeah. much as you can, you know, that you're going to strike it big, you're going to hit that top three or something like that. Fortnite roulette. Yeah, yeah put, exactly. Put money on a bunch of numbers and hope one of them hits. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Fortnite Roulette. I like that. I like that. So that I guess that brings us perfectly into the next topic then. There was something really cool that you said um, before we started recording about esports teams, you know, being uh, adding on value or detracting value depending on what certain games are and such too. Could you could you rehash that now that we're live and, and chat a little bit about the landscape in different games under different publishers and how esports teams relate to it? Yeah, so let's start with Fortnite, actually. That's probably the easiest one. Fortnite... Yeah. I, I look at Fortnite as it should be more of a PGA or a WTA model. Like It's like golf or tennis in that you have individual players who go to tournaments, play these games. Sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't. Um, but mm-hmm. with the PGA, you know, everybody knows who Tiger Woods is, but he isn't signed to the Lakers. He isn't signed to some brand. He gets his own sponsors by being really, really good at the game and then going out and winning tournaments. And Fortnite, I think, could largely be the same way, where individual players could bootstrap themselves. Um, unless the team, and again, this goes back to the point, unless the team is providing some other form of value. Like, you know, if they're creating 100 Thieves, creating a really good lifestyle brand, doing good content creation, things like that, providing these other elements that make you say, yeah, I want to be with them. Like, 
you could just go out and win tournaments and go on Twitch and stream yourself and then get an agent to go get you sponsorships. And suddenly, oh, look, that's what Ninja and Dr. Lupo and Tim the Tatman and all these other guys are doing is instead of signing with a team, they just become brands unto themselves. Mm. So that is something you could do much more easily in an individual game like Fortnite, or if fighting games were bigger, for example, if they had more of that money, more of that attention on them, you could be a Street Fighter player, or a Tekken player, or a Mortal Kombat player, just go play in those tournaments, win, build your brand. I mean, in many ways, that's what you know Sonic Fox has done. But then you get, it becomes harder once you get to the team games, because then you have a lot more logistics to take care of. You've got a lot more you know, flying out to these tournaments instead of necessarily online tournaments, you you almost need to put the infrastructure around you to have a manager, to have a coach, because now you're coordinating four, five, six people, depending on which game you're playing. Um, mm. So you need more of that infrastructure around you just to manage the logistics. But ideally, especially if you're not in a franchise esport, if you're not in Call of Duty League or League of Legends, if instead you're in Fortnite, or not Fortnite, Counter-Strike or Dota 2, where it's just an open system, you could theoretically, and some teams have, we're going to go out, we're going to be good, and then we're going to hire our own manager, we're going to hire our own coach, and we'll just pay them from our winnings. And instead of taking a salary from a team, we're just going to go win tournaments mm. and clean up. Mm. And, but it becomes more of a challenge that way. And there's more fluctuation. Whereas if you're an individual player, you might be able to ride that out more. It's. I remember I had a friend who is a really good poker player who played all through college supporting himself. And he said, the key to winning poker isn't just being good. It's having a lot of money to start with because then you can ride sort of the variation that goes up and down. So mm. I might have some nights where I'm down and then I'll pop back up. If you're a really good Fortnite player, you know, you can kind of ride those ups and downs more, but with a team, there's a lot more variation, a lot more risk that comes in. So you have that infrastructure to support instead yeah, like you were saying with the with the single player titles, um, you know, resonated me with me well. I've got a friend who's a YouTuber with seven hundred thousand subscribers called Daniel Harrison, and you know, part of his thing talking about, you know, do you have a manager? Do you want management? Him saying that he only would consider a manager if their full time job is purely just for him, because he thinks that that's what he deserves, you know, to help to grow him and his brand, and he doesn't want to sign to an organization or a talent management agency who's also got 15 other people that they're trying to pay attention to at the same time. And the same thing goes with, you know, these kind of plays that you're saying. Is it advantageous for you to say, especially when you start to become large, right, and and you know that you're almost guaranteed $300,000 worth of winnings throughout that year, can you put aside 55 k to hire someone with full expenses to look after you 24-7. They can do your brand deals. They can book your flights for you. They can come with you, you know, to these tournaments. Make sure you've got your water, your, your where you need to be, you know, from time and time again. And like you were saying with the esports organizations and what value do they bring depending on what the publishers are, you know, this has been a question I've asked myself for a long time because for quite some time now, any publisher-based event is is supporting the team, is supporting the team's upcoming with boot camps, computers, flights, and accommodation. So where does that leave the organization? Where in the past, thinking back like 10 years, which is kind of the time when I was at my peak playing around there, you would sign to an organization because they would pay your entry fees into a tournament. And that's $150 that you didn't have to pay. They'd provide you with a server for Ventrilo or Mumble or whatever, as well as for Counter-Strike. And that was an extra 20, 30 bucks a month that you didn't have to support yourself with. And then if you're with a T1 org, 
um, like say when I was Thermaltake sponsoring a team called Mecca, I would give them a thousand dollars to help them get to a live event once a year. So you know that you've got that support. But now if you're getting all those things for free, you don't need a server for Fortnite. You don't need a server for Ventrilo. Discord's free. Um, you know, you're being, you're being provided with your flights and accommodation and, and a pre-boot camp and even all of your marketing. Is there a point to signing with these? And does that mean that now the power is so much more in the players' hands than it is in the orgs with these non-franchise games? And, you know, we're seeing this in Dota 2, for example, where Team Liquid's, you know, ex-Team Liquid has left. They've created their own organization. You know, OG for a long time was a single-team organization with a small management team. Now, obviously, they're in CSGO, where the players do have ownership in the CSGO team anyway. Um, you know, you've got Team Secret and Alliance, you know, and you can just go on and on and on of these single-team organizations in Dota 2 because the players know, and after talking to PPD, you know, the players know that the power is in their hands a lot of the time in regards to this. Valve is flying you to tournaments. They're feeding you. They're doing your transfers. They're, they're you know, putting computers in your hotel room, et cetera, et cetera. So do you need the support from organization or are they really detracting? Are they taking 15% of your prize pool for nothing in return for a small salary that really doesn't matter if you're trying to win $3 million a person at the international? Yeah, no, I think you make a lot of good points. I think there's also a lot to unpack there as well with, you know, are you one of those teams who can win that $3 million, $15 million, whatever? I mean, $15 million was, I think, the last... Uh, first place for yeah. OG last year. Yeah, around three um, a player. Yeah. yeah, so three a player. I mean, if you're not winning, and that's one of the big questions that I hear a lot because I work mostly in Dota 2 is, you know, Will Parton, that guy I mentioned at the beginning, he wrote this big article on is the international actually the worst thing for Dota 2 because mm-hmm. of its gravity. So in, in Dota 2, if you can't win that, sure, like, you know, why be with a team? Why not just bootstrap it yourself, you know, get really good, go win it. But trying to get to that point is difficult and then trying to support a tier two scene or a feeder scene where you can kind of develop talent which pbd has you know he's probably been one of the people who's worked on it the most uh he had the na was nadcl um the north american like developmental league basically uh Mm. where he was trying to bring talent up if you don't have money going into that sure you could be the top team but you know who else are we going to watch you play against so and there, there's still this challenge of how do you get the economics right so that that does work. And I think that's where teams are trying to still figure out their value add um, and still figure out what their value proposition is. So, you know, we'll see. It, it's going to work in some spaces. I think that's one of the reasons they have franchise leagues is so that teams can just protect that value. But I don't know if that's the right model either. Yeah, yeah, and there's so many risks in that. And I guess that's what we'll get into get into next. But I'm wondering if, you know, you're saying it's like that poker model. I wonder if it's like that again, where often players, you know, one of the investors in us is is Joe Hashem, who's a poker player. He won the World Series of Poker back in 2013 or around that kind of time, maybe earlier. And, you know, whenever he goes over every year to Vegas, people will fund him. And then, you know, he'll provide a return should he win. Is it the same with, with Dota 2? Is it the same with Fortnite? Where, you know, this happened in a, in a Facebook group that I run called the Oceania Esports and Gaming Business Group. You know, a kid was saying there, look, here's, here's all of my results. You know, I've been placing quite highly in these leagues. I've got an organization that wants to sign me for X amount of money. Um, you know, it's like $300 a month to go to this tournament and they want to charge 15%. And it was just very basic maths. It was like, look, what are you likely to win? And what's the percentage they're going to take from you? And it's, it's 
kind of like, you know, it's likely that you're going to get paid $600 by them plus $1,000 in expenses and very likely you're going to give them $7,000 in winnings. So if that's the case, maybe a GoFundMe would be better or yeah. maybe go to go to your dad and say, hey, I'll double your money if you if you provide me with this support or something like that. And that's, that's kind of similar to what Fatality did many, many moons ago, you know, kind of known as the first ever famous professional player. There was a story where his parents said, look, we don't want you to play games anymore. It's useless. He said, look, if I don't win this tournament, I'm never going to play again. And he, he went, won the tournament, came home, slapped, I don't know how much it was, probably ten, twenty thousand $20,000 on the table. So there you go. I won yeah. the tournament. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. No, I, I, I've heard some of that model for people actually funding their education where you can like, I mean, in some ways it sounds like indentured servitude too, where you invest in my education and then when I go get a job, you get a certain percentage return of whatever yeah. salary I get going out there. But shocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I do think there is an opportunity for that creativity. Again, I think it becomes more difficult when you have a team just because the logistics and the costs balloon up a lot. But mm-hmm. you know, if you do create your own brand, if you can get your own fans, why not go that route? Why not try something a little different? Mm. I mean, so adding just... Yeah, sorry, keep going. Oh no, I was just gonna say like with phase, right? With phase and with optic, like there were just people putting YouTube videos up for a while and then, you know, they got more brand strength and off to the races. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talked about kind of these single team games and ones where the publishers aren't, say, too involved, say like Dota 2, et cetera, where things are a bit more free. So then that begs the question of, okay, how do you commercialize the product? How do you add the safety for the teams, not just the players? So this is when a franchise league comes in. So when I met my investors for the first time, um, they hired me as a consultant to kind of talk to them about the whole esports industry, what a team means, what a player means, what an organization means, et cetera. And the question that came from, from Joe Hashem was, okay, you know, I wanted to, originally he wanted to invest in an esports team. And he said, but you're telling me that games don't exist forever. They can die. And sometimes they can die anytime. So if I'm buying into a franchise league, because at that stage it was discussion around Overwatch, if I'm buying into a franchise league, which is $25 million plus sticker price, and then that game dies, what do I actually own in the end? So it's probably a good way to, to kick off your thoughts about, about franchise leagues. Yeah, you might own some branding at the end of it, but not much else. Um, I mean, yeah. No, I, I think that franchise leagues... I think you need to separate them into Activision Blizzard and into Riot because I think mm-hmm. they're coming at it from very different places. Um, and yeah. in particular, separate Overwatch even from Call of Duty League and from League of Legends. Um, League of Legends came up and people loved the game and they played the game and it started organically creating an esport the same way Dota 2, uh, the same way you had Smash, the same way you had you know, Counter-Strike. You, you just had communities coalescing around these games to create an eSport. To mm. me, um, an eSport is not something that a publisher decides is an eSport or that um, you know people outside of it call it as an eSport. It's what the community determines is an eSport. Uh, without the community, the eSport doesn't exist. So uh, Overwatch League compared to League of Legends. League of Legends still going strong. Overwatch League, you know, they basically decided it was going to be an esport from its inception, or at least from when they launched it. I don't know if when they were developing the game, they actually decided, yeah, we're going to make this a competitive esport. Mm-hmm. But they decide we're going to hire these casters, we're going to do this production, and we're going to get these investors. But while there was a community, look at how many people are actually watching that regularly. 
Like there isn't actually enough there to create an esport, at least not at that level. Um, and that's another conversation is, you know, there's still ultimate Frisbee leagues and, you know, sort of second tier sports, third tier sports, which people watch and play, but you don't see the money in them that you do in the EPL, La Liga and in, in the NBA, NFL, things like that. Mm-hmm. So you need a community that really is going to support that game unless you somehow pick a winner as a game the same way people are trying to pick Fortnite winners maybe publishers try to pick esports winners and they put a bunch of money into it and then it explodes but without the community it will not happen um so you invest a bunch of money you invest your 25 million dollars in something that frankly is very difficult to watch that the community isn't coalescing around that yes blizzard has done an amazing job selling sponsorships on and i don't know exactly what the money looks like but if you don't have the community eventually coming to that you're moving to YouTube gaming and maybe, you know, your your big car sponsor turns into some small car or sponsor. You know, it, it's all going to dry up eventually. So that's with that short timeline and with how much money is coming in, you have a lot of risk. And personally, I, I would tell people the same thing you're telling them. Don't invest in a franchise league. Um, I mean, maybe you're trying to pick a winner. Maybe you're trying to... Uh, you know, cross sell to your sports brand with that demographic that you're trying to get. But I just don't think it's a safe, I don't think it's a safe investment at all. So yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's an answer that I still don't think I have the hundred percent. Um, you know, I, I don't think I have the hundred percent correct answer for that question, but I'm, I'm sitting definitely on the same side of the fence as you at the moment. And, and it's hard for me because once again, if you invest in a team, Okay, let's let's say let's say you invest in a in a team because you love Dota Two and they've currently got the third best Dota Two team in the world. What happens when that Dota Two team leaves like Nigma and just creates their own organization out of nowhere? You know, no one no one from the public expected that to happen. I'm sure there were some discussions behind the scenes, right, about that. What happens if you invest in an organization because they've got five of the best 20 Fortnite players in the world, but then there's just an exodus where all of these Fortnite players have been leaving organizations ever since the World Cup. Many of them not signed by anyone either. Like we saw players leave Chiefs Esports Club, which is an Australian org, not signed to to a single other org at all. Or they're signing to these insular Fortnite organizations like Raised by Kings and Team Kangana that have never existed before and such. So then the answer to that is, well, go get something that's sustainable that you can own and have a brand. So go sign up with a franchise league. So let's say that you pumped a couple of hundred grand into Gfinity in Australia. That was only around for two years. That's gone now. Um, and, you know, Gfinity in the UK, looking at the books, the performance isn't fantastic, but you never, it's always hard if you're just only looking at the books. But let's say that that disappears as well. You know, that franchise spot that you own is no longer worth 500,000, 2 million, whatever. It's, it's worth zero dollars because the, you know, the league doesn't exist anymore. And the other interesting thing for me too is requiring people to establish a completely new brand to be involved with that is to be involved with that franchise league because like you were saying at the end you might own some branding but then maybe not because if you own the chicago huntsman or you own the houston outlaws and that whole league dies is overwatch going to let you take the houston outlaws and start playing in league of legends with that name or start playing in dota 2 or csgo etc like there's there's a rather large possibility that there isn't and it goes once again to that audience question if you do decide to pivot everybody's following you for fps slash overwatch so if you suddenly start playing league of legends the people are going to say well you know i'm not following you for that game whatsoever so i'm out of here so part of that i think some of these ownership groups, particularly in Overwatch League and CDL and League of Legends, this is this is spending cash for them. Um, you know, you've got Comcast doing uh, the fusion, and they've got just 
money without end. So this is a small, you know, maybe high risk, but small investment for them that could pay off quite largely. So mm. I, I think that's important to remember that a lot of these big investors are, they have a lot of cash. And that's why maybe somebody like 100 Thieves, where they, you know, they're trying to be smart, although they do have the Cavaliers, you know, Dan Gilbert uh, backing them up, I think. But they're, they're trying to be thoughtful about how they use this and where they place their bets. Um, so, so that's one part of that. The other thing, to your point about um, sort of the branding and everything, you know, what is the league getting out of this, though? Uh, what is what is Blizzard getting out of this? They're preventing you from growing your, you know, Cloud9 has Spitfire, but Cloud9 isn't necessarily growing its brand there. So the league isn't losing anything. It's still growing its brands and the things that are there. And it's getting mm-hmm. this huge influx of cash, which for them is still a marketing venture. Esports is still for those large publishers a marketing venture. Their primary products are still the games. It's still in-game transactions. Um, for Valve, it's still getting people on their platform to buy other games because they get a percentage of those. And I think mm-hmm. more and more publishers are turning towards platforms. You've seen Epic launch theirs. Riot is headed towards theirs with their multiple games. So it's still a secondary or I wouldn't even call it a secondary product. It's still a marketing venture for something else. Um, and that's in some ways what these teams are using this investment for. It's not necessarily their primary product. Their primary product is the New England Patriots or the Rams or or whatever. And they're using it to cross-sell the same way that, hey, maybe investing in a sports team in a particular market doesn't make a lot of money. But if we own all of the property around the arena, if we want to just bring this bigger venture up, then it's worth it. So uh, I, I do want to... I have been sort of down on saying that these are good investments by themselves and in a vacuum. But if you look at the amount of money being spent by the owners, if you look at what else they might be trying to do and move, it might make sense. Yeah, I've definitely seen that discussion a bit too around, you know, reminding people that esports is the end goal, like you were saying. You know, it's it's one piece in, in the larger puzzle. And when you're looking at, you know, the global earnings for games industry as a whole, esports is what, 1% or something like that. Um, and, you know, you're seeing the attention, the eyeballs that get to esports versus, say, a casual influencer, say PewDiePie who plays a lot of games, versus how many downloads of Fortnite there have been overall, you know, what percentage of people are actually interested in esports that play said game. It makes sense that it is a loss leader, that it is a marketing exercise, because as with any brand that wants to get into gaming, I always say to them is that, don't get 100% only into esports. It's It should be a portion of your advertising, the same way that... Um, you know, if, if you're a mouse company, it makes sense to work with esports because the players can say, I endorse this product, this product is good because I'm a professional. But that's not the be all and end all. You know, if you're getting in traditional sports, you're not going to sponsor just the Rafael Nadal of tennis and that's it. That's your whole marketing plan. You know, there's going to be so much more. There's going to be little leagues you sponsor. There's, there's grassroots organizations. There's Facebook advertising. There's influencers. There's, you know, sales campaigns, et cetera, et cetera, that are based around that thing. So it's definitely a good point that you said to, to kind of wrap that up around understanding what is the goal. Yeah. Of these people that are involved. Why, why are they into that market? Does Comcast literally need to burn cash to try to get millennials to, come to them to stay around like is that their is that their way that they're reaching out to these people or is there another kind of motive that they need to spend even a certain amount of r&d on a certain state you know there's always so many more there's so many more motivations that are really impossible to see from the outlook and that's why i've realized over the years that it's just so hard to make a be all end all call on something like this is bad this is good 
because you know sometimes people are just trying to evade paying tax by spending money <laughs> so yeah, who knows sure. like who knows why some people are involved in certain things but yeah it's 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 a it's a really complexing problem to me to say if you want to invest in the team kind of thing you know where does the money go and i guess a lot of the time for me as a startup we've done this many times and talking to my friends who are investors and ask the question who's winning in in the gaming market, who's making a lot of the money right now? And for me, I feel like the answer is A, the influencers, and B, like we've talked about so much, is the publishers. So how do you align yourselves closer with them? And, you know, our lawyer, Matt Jessup, who is a fan of, of franchise leagues, says that the people that are making all the money are the publishers, so align yourself with them as closely as you can. And whether that means running tournaments for publishers, if you're an ESL, whether that means aligning yourself with publisher campaigns to help launch Apex Legends, if you're a ninja, or whether that means joining and paying to join a franchise league like Call of Duty and Overwatch if you're an esports organization. You know, it seems to make sense to everyone right now to align with those publishers as close as possible. But I guess part of the question for you is how do we take some of that power away from the publishers or is it even possible to do so for people to start making their money in their own rights without being an influencer, gaining donations from the public? I think, um, I think it's really difficult. I mean, that's the short answer. I think it's really difficult. I think with the way copyright law is set up right now, um, they get those ownership rights and they get them for a long, long time. And trying to peel off those rights is very, very challenging. And they're going to defend them uh, very strongly and they're going to have more money to defend them than basically, I mean, maybe not anybody else if you've got Comcast who's now playing in the field too, but a lot mm. of those big companies are investing are also invested in having strong copyright laws because of their brands. Um, I mean, ultimately, uh, all of sports is a marketing exercise. I mean, it's it's my brand versus your brand versus your brand. It's still that. Mm -hmm. Maybe we have a, a local market. So I, I think it's very difficult. I think the ways you can do it are going to be looking more at antitrust law and labor law and having players. I honestly think players unions, maybe not players unions, but players associations, because when it comes down to esports, the ultimate product you're putting on is not the game. Like, I'm not just going to go watch anybody play the game. It's the players who are good at the game. And so after the game itself, your biggest value add is the players. And for esports, that is the value add. Um, so mm -hmm. I think players associations have the most potential to move publishers in the right way. I think that varies from publisher to publisher as well. Uh, Valve wants people who will help solve problems for them that they don't want to work on themselves. I'm not speaking for Valve, but that's what I've seen in their behavior. They mm -hmm. want people... You know, you guys go yeah. run with it as long as it's not hurting us. And if it's creating value, that's great. Go keep doing that. Activision, mm. Blizzard, um, I don't know what they're doing. Uh, they're, they're taking a lot of people's money, but it seems like they're in some ways almost killing their esports. Uh, I mean, StarCraft, the premier esport could be huge, but I think they didn't see an opportunity to sell franchise teams with StarCraft. It was going to be a Fortnite. It was going to be a PGA thing. It was going to be something mm -hmm. where they would have to put in a lot more work in order to collect the money out there. Um, and maybe harder to sell skins. I don't know. Harder to monetize there. So with you know, Valve, I, I see Valve games as the best place for players to get involved and to move them because Valve is the most willing to work with that. Um, of the big publishers that are out there between Riot and, um, you know, the other ones that are, that are big right now. So th those are really the only ways. Change copyright law fundamentally 
or you know the CSPPA and Dota players getting more involved with Valve games and trying mm-hmm. to show what a good model looks like. Because I think if other publishers see like, hey, look what's working over here that's making money, everybody's happy, happy it's thriving, then maybe they'll start to move towards that. Otherwise, they're going to keep top-downing it and trying to do what they think is right and maybe not listening to the community very well. And if you're not listening to the community, at least to some degree, uh, you're you're not going to succeed in this space. I'm, I've been getting so close to getting a franchise, someone from a franchise team from the Overwatch League onto a podcast to have a chat. So I find it, I, it's almost unfair that, you know, I've talked so much about that kind of stuff with yourself and with some of my own content and stuff. And I just really want the opinion from the inside. You know, why are you yeah. guys involved with it? What benefit do you get out of it? Why did you choose to do that versus a Fortnite organization? Why are you spending the money in that area? And I did exactly the same thing with uh, live, you know, live facilities, say like uh, access replay and arena and, and things like that. You know, I had a lot of opinions on them, but I was able to actually get someone on and that's the the power of, you know, kind of podcasts and LinkedIn Live and that kind of stuff to actually ask them those questions. You know, are you guys successful? How are you drawing in your money? What are your main issues, you know, with growth and, you know, how's the market performing, et cetera? I really want that. But changing the, the right person too. Because yes. otherwise they're just going to get the sales pitch all over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's why PPD was so refreshing. It took me a long time to get a very business-minded player who's, you know, he's really not scared of speaking his mind. He makes that very clear yeah. over, over the past five, ten years, you know, he's very open and honest. And that was great to hear from him, to have that very blunt thing of the reason that Dota players don't want to stream because they're paid not to care because they're going to win more money than they're ever going to get from trying to, you know, kiss Comcast's feet to get a $5,000 spot where they have to do a six-hour stream for them. They'd rather just come eighth in the international yeah. and they'd make more money. You know, 12th, 16th, I think it's like 12 to 16 is 500 That's grand yeah. last year. Which yeah. is ridiculous. It's a hundred k player, you know, minus tax and fees, et cetera. Sure, let's say you get fifty k in your bank. That's that's over minimum wage for coming last in an in international tournament. Obviously, there's a lot of skills and experience, and you know, not to downplay that to get to that area. But still, you know, if you're looking at those metrics, is it really worth doing those five hundred dollar appearances and such when you can hopefully win fifty k for the year of one tournament? No, that's exactly right. Um, my opinion is because eventually the international tournament is going to decrease in size in terms of money why not just cap it right now at 25 million at 20 million or something take whatever goes over and invest it into developmental leagues into other things that will help support the space Mm. Mm. my ideal job in esports would probably be trying to run Valve's esports sides and work with all the parties to coordinate and make a better space that that's why i got into this is because i wanted to see a better space Mm, mm, that's good. So we we talked a lot about the tier ones in both teams and games. Let's have because we've got a few minutes left. Let's have a little bit of a chat about the tier two market in both organizations and titles. So we've seen a bit of volatility in the tier two space. So Heroes of the Storm disappeared out of nowhere. Um, now that Skillshot have separated from higher res, you know, there's a bit of uncertainty around the Smite, the Paladins League, as far as I'm aware, um, and you know. Looking back to, say, Dota 2, which is your main game of choice in the past and mine as well, Tier 2 organisations struggle to exist and Tier 2 leagues essentially don't exist, you know, unless they're a minor and they exist, as the name says, in a rather minor way compared to everything else. So I'd love to get your opinion about just the whole, It's a, it's a you know, it's a massive question, but I guess what first comes to mind around the Tier 2 market for you? Um, the first thing that came to mind was Tier 2 Dota tournaments, which have largely been pushed out because of the DPC. But the best space I see them being done is beyond the summit and sort of 
uh, Moonduck as well when they can get money to do tournaments. So, mm. you know, Midas Mode and Captain's Draft and some of those tournaments where you move maybe a little bit away from the serious nature of them and towards more of the fun. Um, mm. That's where I see a lot of space for tournaments, at least in the Dota space, tier two tournaments to thrive. Um, you have to get people who believe in them and you have to get, you know, somebody like Sir Action Slacks who can just sell his butt off and, and, get sponsors somehow get nasa you know whoever he's gotten to to sponsor these things um but the problem from there is where you can have those tier two tournaments is that going to be enough to support tier two organizations and i think the answer is no um i think unless you really and again let's let's think a little bit more to traditional sports and that model into music is there is a second tier they get paid far less you have to find ways to lower your costs and lower your expectations um, in order to make that survive. And I think we haven't really had that. We want sort of a tier two scene that will be paid just as well. And well, I don't think they can be paid just as well. We do need to make sure that they're pay- being paid enough that mm-hmm. it's worth it. Because otherwise, why don't I go you know, get my degree and go do something else instead of getting paid 500 bucks a month? Um, mm. That is, I think right now in Dota, the biggest challenge. And I think a lot of that could be solved if we restructured the international and restructured the distribution more so that it was more worth it for organizations to be in there. And that would have a secondary effect of helping to stabilize teams because right now the international teams just want to win it. And so they will poach, they will break apart, they will try to find the right mix. And it's very hard to be stable in Dota 2. Um, As to other games, I mean... Again, there there can be tier two games all over the place. It's sort of trying to pick and choose your winners. Um, but again, you just need to lower your expectations on the money. The problem between esports having a publisher and having your ultimate frisbee, having your uh, you know Australian league football, like you you have like actual like I know there's Irish football, there's Gaelic football. Sorry, I should say that differently. <laughs> Gaelic football. Um, yeah. They're, they're sort of these sports that aren't necessarily known outside of particular regions or they're, you know, we've got these second tier sports in the U.S. Um, that people still play, but there's just not as much money in it. It's mm-hmm. hard to do when the publisher is controlling the title. And so the community can't just take it and run with it and create those community events and do those community things without the publisher you know, somehow still having its control in it. So if we get publishers to relax a little bit and let the community take more control that's, I think, one of the biggest ways to solve a lot of these problems. Um, mm. But outside of that, I mean, again, it's 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 one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem, is how to create a pipeline of talent and how to create a stable tier two scene. And I think it starts with how do you s- solve the tier one scene and then let that move down. It's funny you mentioned around um, relaxing of the control. You know, we did some stuff recently with a client late last year where we were looking at both FIFA and Fortnite and the community, and this is answering a question in the chat as well, is is about, you know, how do you run a tournament? Do you need to pay a publisher to run a tournament? The answer is generally no. But the the um, community guidelines around Fortnite versus FIFA were crazy different. You know, the Fortnite community guidelines were essentially no alcohol, no drugs, um, and we need to approve the graphics and they need to be relevant to whatever season is happening at this stage and some basic things around logos, you know, don't change the colour, don't put it too close to something else. 
that was essentially it. Whereas FIFA is you can't charge over a certain entry fee, you can't pay over a certain prize pool, you can't have X amount of sponsors. And also the tournament has to be in this format and you have to use these teams, uh, you know, et cetera, A, B, C, D. And then, you know, we asked a question and then it didn't get responded to for six weeks. So we simply just couldn't run it, which is crazy a lot of the time and understanding they want to protect their IP, but also frustrating when it's like, I want to market your game for you. FIFA adds an extra layer, though, because I'm sure there are licensing deals between, like, the game and FIFA, like, actual soccer leagues and the players and their likeness and image rights that are flying around a lot more. So there's probably a lot more stringency yeah. they have to go through. But even between non-sports games, using all of that, um, from publisher to publisher, recently I was actually looking at all the different community licenses that are available, and it is... Like you said, you know, lots of variety in what you can do um, mm. and different scales. Valve, very straightforward, like pretty simple licenses. Um, Blizzard has tiers between, you know, up to a certain amount of money. Here's your license. If you need more than whatever those parameters are, you need to apply for a custom license. Um, mm. You can only do so many tournaments in a year, uh, only a certain amount of total money over the course of the year, things like that. So there, there are a lot of different things, and you really need to pay attention to those licenses too, just to make sure you can do it going forward. Yeah, and like people say, you know, do I really need them? And the answer is yes. Uh, there's a really simple thing you can look up. If someone's on a computer, well, I mean, you are if you're watching this right now on a phone, you could type in the keywords are something like Fortnite UK Children's Party Epic Sue. Okay. There was a person who ran it was an unlicensed event. They ran a Fortnite live event. I think it was somewhere in somewhere in the UK. They charged like forty pounds per person to come in, which is a fairly premium price. Promised dozens of consoles, all of these activities, etc. There was like one climbing wall and three consoles against a wall. There was a line of like eighty kids to get in, oh and you know, Epic Games rightfully so sued the pants off them because all the parents went there, thinking it was going to be an awesome event for their kids. You know, some drove three four hours to get there, and it was a horrible experience for them. So that's why they do have these community guidelines and, and things you need to follow because sometimes you know people can abuse that and such but you know sometimes it's a little bit it's a little bit too much and I kind of wish everyone was like valve or csgo where unless there's something highly unless you're running a drug ring at your tournament you're pretty much good to go like you're pretty much good to go or if something yeah. crazy happens with the government like you know what's happened in the past you're pretty much good to go and i find it interesting around the tier two scene and i've talked about this a lot um you know, I guess in the past, every investor who ever talked to me would say, Chris, I want to buy an esports team. And that's and that's kind of starting to change now. But still, what I see is happening a lot is everybody's trying to be the biggest and the best, and it's going towards the tier one. But I am seeing that start to change now. In the past, everybody wanted to run the biggest Dota 2 tournament in the world. Everyone wanted to have the largest, most followed esports team. Everyone wanted to have the largest facility with the biggest fit out with the most amazing computers and the biggest stage, et cetera. And I am seeing that start to change now. And I think part of that is because there's so much more. And with our founders pitch series, there's so much more emphasis going on the technology that's supporting the back end, whether it's Joda Pro, whether it's, you know, finding influencer talent, whether it's community grassroots, whether it's high school esports and stuff, which is good. But I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to help to support the tier two industry a bit where in the past, the waiting and the attention and everything has all been towards the top, you know, Fortnite pumping millions and millions of dollars in, but it's only for the best players, you know, Overwatch making a massive league, but it's only for the top players and kind of discounting their development league. Call of Duty, very similar as well, you know, really cucking their their development league putting all their money into their top league dota 2 like you were saying with the international you know csgo 
with their minors and majors and, and limited development opportunities as well. That, you know, the tier two scene has been hurting a lot. And I, I think it's a very good case study to look at, you know, Counter-Strike in Australia as to why it's such an important game when it has literally had zero developer support and zero teams really going overseas except for once a year to World Cyber Games. But it's been the biggest esport in Australia for the past 15 years because of that inherent community support and everybody back in and so much content to consume as much as possible. So two two sort of parts you had about there. One was about everybody trying to be the biggest and the best. And then the other mm-hmm. one about you know, sort of what do you do about the tier two scene, which I think we've talked about a little bit. Um, mm. My big thought about that first part, I, I want to give a, a shout out to a quote from Lauren Gabba Flanagan, who is a good friend and who works in esports and does a lot of branding. Um, mm-hmm. you know, has worked for some of the, the bigger agencies, uh, not just in esports, but actually in the entertainment world generally. She said, being the biggest or being the best is not a brand. And right now we have everybody focusing on that, like you said, but very few people actually trying to build brands. Uh, whether you're a content creator or a team or a tournament operator, you want to be thinking about how you build your brand and what that brand is. And so, you know, part of that might come from your demographic. You know, everybody sort of when Ninja said he was going to stop swearing on stream was like, oh, what, you know, why are you doing that? But he realized his demographic and his brand was you know, a younger demographic and he gets made fun of for it by, um, you know, some of the other people he streams with, but he knew what brand he was building and he kept going with that and he leveraged on that. So that is one way you can set yourself apart. Don't just try to be the best. Try to figure out what your brand is and with that, what your community is by kind of working those two things together. You know, that's where you're going to make sure you have the people who keep coming back to you for whatever product you put out for whatever content, for whatever, you know, actual physical things you sell, your community will follow you if you are true to that brand and if you build that brand. Um, the tier two scene, I, I think that's still the biggest problem. Um, I would love to get in a place where I can work more on that, but uh, busy enough with the work I have now too. If somebody wants to pay me to you know, go fix the tier two scene, let's have at it. Yeah, start with the fighting games. They need they need more support. They deserve much more support than they have. But that's, that's a whole podcast in itself. I love yeah. I, that's what I came up with too. I love the fighting game scene. Still the most organic scene. You go to the tournaments, you can talk to the players, you can get tips from them right there. It's an amazing scene. And somebody I know people are trying to work on on making it, you know, more viable, but love mm. that scene and really want to see it thrive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and touching on like you were saying, I'm listening to a book at the moment, which is called This Is Marketing by Seth Godin. And there's some there's some solid points in there that touch on and expand on like exactly what you were saying is around, you know, being being the biggest and the best isn't a brand and and about, you know, why why are people buying or consuming your product? You know, they're say you make a Ferrari, they're not necessarily buying your product because they want a car that's really fast or a car that's expensive. They want one that provides them status or it makes them feel a certain way like a certain person or portrays a certain image of themselves. The same way that I think FaZe does very well in saying, you know, they don't necessarily say they're the biggest, they're the best, but people buy their merchandise because they want to feel like banks. They want to be drinking champagne bottles at 4am on a Tuesday in a club, you know, and they want to feel like they're part of the rap scene and they're similar to Offset and, you know, throwing up the FaZe gang sign and things like that too. They're creating that whole community around what they're doing it's not just the fact that they might be good at games that's just a side part it's not that the fact that they tied in with call of duty that's just the the part you have to pass to to get in there you know download call of duty you know that's that's the first step but you know becoming phase clan is is something much more than that yeah 
I mean, FaZe, for better or worse, has maybe the strongest brand in the entire esports scene. Um, yeah. I mean, like you just said, you know, they've got that reputation, they've got that brand. Yeah. So where, where can people follow you online if they want to connect with you? Obviously, you've, you've made a, you've made a statement that you're not on Twitter for the rest of the 2020. So where can people follow you online? And, and also why, why no more Twitter? So, all right. Well, let's, let's answer the why no more Twitter. Um, yeah. The, the no more Twitter was sort of a cost benefit analysis of how much time and distraction it was taking up and mental space relative to sort of the benefit of it. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted to take a break for a little while. Network is pretty strong. Um, the people who know me and who send me work know what quality of work I do. And so I figured, you know, I might lose some marginal benefit in the business development side, but I'll check DMs every once in a while and then get back out before uh, starting to scroll downwards. Um, but, you know, I still am, the the Twitter is still there at Fair Play Esports. And uh, I am on Discord um, at Fair Play Esports number 7130. I hope I don't get flooded with requests after this, but I'm always happy to talk to people. And then email. I mean, it's at this point, it sounds weird to say email is a little old fashioned, but our Fairchild at BrooksPierce.com. Um, and you know, if people are watching this on LinkedIn, feel free to add me and we can talk more there as well. Yeah. I think that's a good, I think that's a good point about Twitter. Um, you know, you can find yourself easily lost and I had that same realization on Instagram, started using it for a while when we created it, when we created influence organization as well, kind of comes with the, comes with the territory. But I realized that I was flicking through stories all the time. And then I remember I got five minutes in once thinking, I don't care about any of these. They've added nothing to my life. I've seen so many breakfasts and lunches and people at the gym. You know, I haven't learned anything and I haven't connected or built a friendship with anyone at all. I could have gone to the gym. I could have eaten breakfast during that time. I could have gone to the gym. I could have gone swimming. I could have done any of these things that these people are doing in the, yeah, exactly. I think, uh, I think there's a coming backlash to some of that social media. And I think that a lot of these social media engines have been designed to keep attention. Um, But, you know, it's good to check out. Good to just touch base every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like you were saying, even with building a brand, understanding who you are, I see this a lot where, you know, faceless kind of peer organizations start trying to make themselves a, a social media and they start posting links and articles and writing and things all the time and thinking it's not, it's not who you are and it's not your business whatsoever. The same way that if you're trying to portray a certain person in business, you know, you don't need to be on Twitter 24 seven trying to keep up with the influencers because it's literally their job to be on Twitter. So you don't have to feel the pressure to have as many followers as they do or do the same things that they do just because, um, you know, right. Just because, you know, Ryan has a certain amount of followers or some of the managers from YouTube have a bunch of followers because they have a history as content creators. Doesn't mean that you have to draw your value as a business person from, you know, how many Twitter followers you have and such and understanding where your leads come from, I think is an important one, like you were saying, which is why I'm such a large proponent of LinkedIn because there's a lot of bullshit on LinkedIn the same way that there's a lot of bullshit on Instagram. But you don't have to pander to that and you don't have to become part of that and just stay true to who you are because people will realize that, you know, there's certain types of posts that I don't make on LinkedIn to farm engagements the same way that people do it on Twitter and, and on Instagram and things like that too because, you know, for me, LinkedIn is primarily a, a verification of myself and my knowledge, being able to get people like you on and, and hold a good conversation, but B, you know, a lead generator and a revenue driver for us as a business. And it's functioned extremely well in that case so far. So there's no reason for me to say be posting on Instagram all the time because it's not my target market. I'm not trying to gain a mass following at all. 
and the people who are in control of these marketing budgets and such who are going to pay me to do work with them to get them into esports or find them influencers and such. They're not flicking through Instagram stories 24-7. Yeah. No, and we've moved into the self-help phase of the conversation now. <laughs> what you said, though, about you know picking your principles and living by those, that's actually something I've been thinking a lot about this last year and was part of what led up to getting off Twitter is, you know, pick your principles, live by those and good things will happen around you. Yeah. Power to you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And thanks to everyone for the comments on the LinkedIn Live. And for those people who are listening into the podcast, thank you for joining us again. We will be back again with some more LinkedIn Lives. And we've got we've actually got a ton of LinkedIn Lives booked for this upcoming week and next week. So I can't wait to broadcast those out to you. But one of the most exciting ones is Loader. Um, really a, a god when it comes to Dota 2, been playing at the top tier for many, many years, and now he's moved into the business um, player ownership and coaching role too. So if you have any questions that you'd like to ask an actual player from a business perspective, please feel free because I feel like there's such a massive disconnect between the business side of things and the players. And like Ryan was saying in this episode, ultimately it's all about the players. They are the beginning, the middle, and the end of esports. So thanks for coming, everyone. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 